airways Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420 3XY, how are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six, 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, The Breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi, and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to chat with the people behind the voices who are friends to a whole generation. And today's guest was different, unique, Probably a headache at times to the bosses, but overall, an FM's ratings winner. He was the captain, and he still is, Carl Van Est. Hey, Carl Van Est, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, and thank you, Pilots. Well, Carl, we've had many migrants come to Australia and settle in some extremely desirable places. How did the Van Est family come to land in Geraldton? Ah, well, um, we migrated here apparently in 1951. Um, my father paid for the fare uh, for his wife and three kids, and I was one of them. Um, we came through the Suez Canal. I was a, a one-year-old baby, and apparently I threw my shoe in the canal, which my mother got really antsy and nuts about. But she was quite insane anyway after the war. But anyway, we got to Western Australia, what a beautiful place. What a beautiful place. And we, we uh, actually had a good time. Uh, when I say a good time, my father, you know, he, his business grew and grew and he had a, a, he opened the first laundromat of all things because he used to be a laundry guy in, in Holland. And apparently we had a lot of money in Holland. And the only reason why we survived the war was because he had the laundry contract with the uh, Rotterdam Hospital which was the only joint that wasn't bombed. And um, so we used to get a lot of coal so we could be heated up during the winter. No one else apparently could. But anyway, we got to uh, Western Australia and then after some time in a uh, hostel, uh, then apparently we went to, uh, my father bought a property in Morley Park, which is now all built out. Anyway, whatever happened, uh, we ended up going to Geraldton. And that's where... Uh, I grew up as a kid, and my sister, who's 13 years older than myself, she married a, a farmer out there, uh, Jim DeBulo. Uh, and then about 1956, we went to Perth, back to Perth, and that's when my father opened up the laundry, laundromat business, which was unheard of at the time. Um, how disgusting. But not, not really, you know, because there's so much sunshine in Perth, why do you need a laundry? It's quite weird. So when was that interest in radio ignited? I was in Perth, grew up, I went to Applecross High School, did all those things, 
then I uh, achieved, I was a complete idiot at school, by the way. I, I really just, it wasn't until 18 that I could actually read a book and remember it. But once I was 18, all of a sudden, this knowledge just zoomed into me. And um, I, I got a radio op uh, operator's license. And I was a radio officer for a, a mineral company. And we, we were just roaming around the north of West Australia, uh, picking at rocks. And I'd report back every day about their, um, their progress, the geologists. And uh, when I got back to Perth, I went, well, you know, I much prefer to stay. And I met a girl, of course. Hello. And I saw a job advertised for 6 p.m., a control operator. So I applied for the job, went there. And we're talking having a tie on and all that stuff. And um, I got the job. And then all of a sudden, I'm working at 6 p.m. In, in St. George's Terrace in Perth at the time. And it's amazing. I, I found uh, a whole life in there that I, it was exciting. I actually was accepted. So how did that first on-air gig come about? Remember um, the moon landing? And I saw all of that. And Sir Frank Packard was in the building at the time who used to own the whole shebang um, Consolidate Broadcasting System. Anyway, I met him and he's cool. And we're watching the uh, the moon thing. Uh, there was a guy called Sam Cronier who was doing breakfast. Uh, he's a legendary man. He's since passed. And uh, Sam obviously comes from South Africa, actually. But anyway, um, I was his control operator or his panel operator of doing breakfast. And one particular day or morning, uh, Sam said, listen, I want you to come in here. Um, tell them that I'm locked in the dunny. <laughs> it's one of those old tricks. And, of course, this was all new to me. And, right, so then when the uh, song had finished, and remember, we're playing 45s off. We were playing adverts off discs as well in those days. But, anyway, song finishes. I come on the radio, 6 p.m. Uh, look, I'm sorry to let you know this, but uh, Sam Cronier is locked in the dunny and he can't get out. And then someone who was banging on the door to make it sound sort of like authentic. And this went on for 20 minutes. Then we do the whole, I'm sorry, Sam just can't get out of there. And, and of course, the phones were all going nuts. And eventually, uh, he comes out, of course, and, and, and ended the plot. I can't quite remember the, what the end of the plot was. All I know is that someone at the station at the time said, listen, Carl, you need to be on the radio. This is what's happening. And uh, that's exactly what went on. I um, progressed from that to 6G in Geraldton. The management at 6pm said, listen, we've got a job for you up in uh, 6G Geraldton, which was really cool because that's where my sister was on the farm and all that stuff. So uh, there am I in Geraldton. And management and country stations back then was really weird. Or not weird, but they're going like, now, don't get, expect, don't get expectations about doing well in this business. You're just here, and this is what you do, and this is what you have to do. And don't think about going anywhere else. Like, you're not going to go to Melbourne or Sydney or anywhere. You're never going to be a star. You know, this is it. And I'm going like, of course, to me, that was just, I mean, I was 19, and um, my whole ambition in life was to get better at what I do and what I, you know, and that was, that's my whole premise. Uh, every day you get better at what you do. And 
that's exactly what I did. So within six months of being there, mind you, Geraldton 6G was one of the best or the best time in my life. So after Geraldton, it's fair to say that there was a bit of nation hopping for the next couple of years. How did that all start off? I get a message from a, a former jock who was at uh, 6G and he'd moved to 6TZCI Bunbury. So he phoned me and said, mate, there's a job happening. So I sent a tape. It was $65 a week. So from 28, I went to 65. I couldn't believe it. You're kidding. So off to Bunbury we would go. We, we stayed there for um, a year and a half, or not even that, half a year maybe. And then a friend of mine, Chris Caldry, who was the program director at Wagga, 2WG Wagga, he gave me a call and said, listen, we've got a job over here in Wagga. So, and this meant me driving across the Nullarbor Plain, which was uh, gravel at the time, a dirt road. I put my notice in at uh, 60s HCI in Bunbury, and, and then I got a call from 6PR in Perth. And they said, can you do a quick two weeks midnight to dawn in Perth? And I said, okay, I'll try and fit that in. So the guy, the manager in Wagga was furious. So anyway, it didn't matter. So I did the Wagga, sorry, the 6PR two weeks. Then they wanted me to stay. And I was, Cherie Romero was the record librarian who's since gone on to do massive things in Sydney. Uh, Trevor Smith had just left 6PR with John O'Donnell. Uh, they went to 3XY, I think, in Melbourne. And that, that was 6PR at the time. But anyway, I decided I, I, I couldn't stay. I had to go to Wagga. I'd obligated myself. So into the Falcon, off we go, across the gravel road. We eventually get to Wagga Wagga three days later. I drove really quite rapidly. And um, I got to Wagga, and he was the manager was not impressed at all. He said, your shirt's not ironed, and you don't have a tie on. And I'm just, I'm not, I'm not up for that stuff. Anyway, I wasn't then because I, I was a young go-get'em guy. So um, we're off to a bad start. I don't like you, said he. And I went, oh, God, this is going to be tough. So I, I stayed there for six months. And then um, and my friend Chris Cordry, who was the program director, the program manager, he stayed out of the whole argument because he's hanging on to his job. And so anyway, my job was going to go. So I, I eventually... Uh, sent a tape to 6pm in Perth, back to 6pm on air, and they said, right, not a problem. So off we go, back across the Nullarbor. Now you end up in Sydney at 2UW. Who was responsible for getting you up there? Uh, Ray Bean, beautiful man. And Ray Bean gave me a job, was um, a couple of mid-dawns, but also Saturday and Sunday breakfast. Now that worked out well until at some point during the Sunday breakfast, I was playing a song by 10CC, Rubber Bullets. And and part of the lyric line is, we've all got uh, balls and brains and chains or something. And, of course, I mentioned this on the radio, which somebody who was working for the PMG, Postmasters General Department, didn't like that. So Ray Bean said, mate, you've got to go. But he said, I've got another job for you. He said, up in Brisbane, 4BK. Peter Harding, the program manager. And I went, Fantastic. 1975 and up to Canberra to 2CC. Radio station, Nick Irby was the manager. Beautiful man. And bang, I received this letter saying, you're on board and this is what you're going to make and you're going to make $284 a week and blah, blah, blah. So off we go. We're now in Canberra. And I was in Canberra for two years where I was there for the opening. 
And what's really good about it is that uh, Nick allowed me to get up there a month before they opened. And he said, listen, you're up here early because I want you to just assimilate into town, find out the suburb names, what it's all about, and just, you know, blend in and find out what camera's about. So we had a whole month of doing that. And by the end of that month, of course, you knew all the suburb names and all that sort of Garland and blah, blah, blah. And um, then the station opened, uh, which I think was in October uh, 1975. And um, it was two years that I was there. I, I left at the end of 77. Of course, it wasn't Carl Van Est on air up there. It was a guy called Con Van, wasn't it? Correct, correct. That was uh, that was my name, which was given to me by a, a legendary DJ in 6pm in Perth called JJ White. And he said, you can't use your name. It's, you know, it doesn't fit on the radio. There's too many wogs on the radio anyway. Oh, here we go, the, you know, the wog card. Anyway, I used to get on with Italian and Greek people more than anyone else. When I was a kid at school, they always used to accuse, accuse me of being a German. You know, and Western Australia back then was really bad. The Dutch left us at Singapore. So I used to cop that crap all the time. But anyway, J.J. Um, White said, no, you've got to anglicise your name, which I did. So I, I cut it down to Con Van, V-A-N-N. So that was uh, the last of Con Van, actually, was at 2CC in Canberra. Now, London in the mid-70s must have been an exciting place. What was the lure to hang up the headphones and head to the UK? Uh, well, one, I had friends in Canberra who were journalists, and they've already hit the road, uh, started to travel. And they'd been to exotic places, a la Bali, back in those days, where you could actually do anything back then. <laughs> now, of course, you can't. But anyway, uh, and, of course, uh, Thailand, all those places. So I... Um, rendezvoused with them in London. So we're now in, in London at, in, uh, in Chelsea. And one of the journalists had a job with a rock magazine, which I can't remember the name of, Time Out or something. And um, she asked me to apply for this job, which was uh, calculating a, a, chart, a chart, a music chart for them, uh, which I did, which was quite interesting. I found it, found out things like dire straits were not popular in England, but were popular in Australia, which is quite weird. And I'm going like, no, no, no. And then I found out that West Coast American music in England and London was not you know, revered at all. Uh, because at the time, we're talking Ian Jury here, hit me with your rhythm stick and all that stuff. Um, but anyway, I um, worked for them for a while, which is great. And then that came to an end. And then I scored a job at a pub as a cellarman and then a, a barman. And then a young lady approached me and said, I run a club up the road in Chelsea, Kings Road, opposite the Rocky Horror Show. And she said, would you like a job as a cocktail barman? And of course, I didn't know how to make cocktails at all. But I went, yeah, not a problem. And she said, it's not a problem. Here's a big chart and that'll tell you how to do them, how to make them. And I went, all right, okay, I'm into that. So I worked there as a barman, a cocktail barman, for about three weeks. Then I was made the uh, cashier, which meant I was behind the till and taking the money. And it was a live venue. Um, and, you know, they just made hamburgers, but really good hamburgers. It's, 
and chili con carne and all that sort of stuff. And some crazy waitresses, like you wouldn't believe it. This is London, King's Road. This is like just out of the punk era. Anyway, I became the assistant manager, which basically meant I was the night manager, which is fine by me. I'm working till three in the morning. Uh, I had accommodation upstairs. Uh, I was getting paid £160 a week. This was after I was made manager. So I was getting £160 a week in 1979, living on top of the venue on the seventh floor overlooking Kings Road, and it was phenomenal. So had you had enough of the high life after two years, or was the game plan always to come home at that time? My father died, and I kind of figured I was going to have to come back to Australia. Good times got to finish. Um, by the time I left, I was absolutely sick and tired of, of London. I'd had enough. Seriously, it was a tough place. And I went back to Canberra, which is where I'd left, C, remember? They didn't want to know about me. Nick Irby, the whole place had changed. So I went to 2CA, and there was a program director called uh, Milt Barlow. Milt was a really good man. He had such a beautiful voice. And Milt, Milt said, uh, listen, Carl, you're on. Carl was not to go. It was Convan, okay? Now, that was the last of Convan. Okay, Carl, so the big move was to Eon FM in Melbourne. Tell us about that move. I met an old friend of mine, Gunther Gorman, who used to play with Richard Clapton and whatever. He was also with Sherbert for a brief moment. Um, and he said he'd met uh, Trevor Smith at the music farm up in Mullumbimby or Byron Bay. And, and, he, and he told Gunther that they were um, organising a new radio station in Melbourne, an FM station called Eon FM. So I applied. They flew me down to Melbourne. Uh, I was at, at Lee's place in Lower Templestowe. Lo and behold, who's there? Peter Grace, Trevor Smith, uh, Lee, Lee's wife, of course, later his wife, and Gadinsky happens to be there. I know who Michael was all the time, but anyway. So I'm from London, or back from overseas. I had a slight edge. That The whole point of going away was to actually learn more about life and, 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 and all these different music situations over there. So you come back here and you, you just your knowledge is just far more superior than other people that have not done that. And, and just experiencing the life, you know. Anyway, um, I spent an afternoon there, Sunday afternoon, and at some point, do you have to go back to Canberra tonight, Carl? Or Con? Yes, I do, because I want to see Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. I love Australian music. Now, without knowing it, Gadinsky hears this, and he's over the top. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what he wants to hear. I didn't know that. I just fell into it. I didn't even, it was not planned or, or anything. So uh, they have a meeting outside, and I'm stuck there with their girlfriends. They just be their wives. And um, then they come back and said, mate, you've got the job. Simple. And we want you to do breakfast at Eon FM. Well, breakfast is a really unusual time for me. But I, I say yes, not a problem. So Trevor drives me out in his Mercedes back to the airport. I pop back, fly back to uh, Canberra, and then pack my bags. And, and I drove down to Melbourne. And then I, here I was two or three weeks before Eon FM was to open. I'm now meeting Glenn Wheatley, who's a major shareholder, uh, Bill Armstrong, who is the major shareholder, uh, Paul Dainey, who was a shareholder but dropped out, and all these different people. Oh, uh, Damien Average, Barry Humphreys, he was a share. Glenn Shorrick was a major shareholder as well, had a lot of money. And all of a sudden I'm with Eon FM. And that was the best time of my life. So how did Carl Van Est and Breakfast marry up together? 
I felt like there was a spotlight on me doing breakfast. I couldn't handle it. So eventually, um, I asked them to move me to uh, Midnight to Dawns, which they did. And then all of a sudden, I found myself and I knew exactly what I wanted to do and how to do it. And then I progressed very rapidly from Midnight to Dawn to 10 to 1 and then rapidly to 6 to 10. And then at some point, I must have shown some spark because I was given drive. And uh, that went on for a while. So that was fantastic. And uh, I can truly say that I learned so much. But I do remember uh, at that first, at that meeting that I had at um, Lee Simon's house in Lower Templestowe, they said, listen, you can't use the name Con Van because it's just not going to work. Now, remember, Trevor Smith and Lee Simon had worked with Rod Muir at 3XY. And Rod Muir had a thing called Digamine. And their whole system was everyone had to have a Australian name and an easy name like John Peters, Peter Grace, uh, Chris Maxwell. Well, Chris Maxwell's name is Chris McGlaw or something. It's an Irish name. And all their names, Lee Simon's, I think Vastilius was his first name, but he's Greek. But Lee Simon will do. So it changed everyone's names. And so that came to me and, and uh, Trevor Smith and Lee went, well, you can't use Con Van, right? I said, well, and they said, why don't you use your, your Dutch name? Bill Armstrong leases out a building next to Eon FM, which is uh, SBS. You know, they have all these multi-people there. So I said, Carl Est, not a problem. Fantastic what we're doing. Now, of course, with Eon FM came Captain Carl. Where did he come from? I really can't remember where I picked it up from, but I do know that I was doing stuff outside of radio, which involved going to pubs and clubs with a, a bunch of rap dancers. And I used to, there was like 11 of them, and I, I was constantly on their back about being on time, how to get there, what to wear. And, and they ended up going, well, you're like a captain or something, you know, and, and that kind of stuck. And I was doing some late night clubs in, in the inner city of Melbourne. And then, then someone came back from America with a shirt saying Captain Carl and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And it just stuck. And then Lee, um, and then an Eon, um, I sort of embellished it a bit. I was off air and then I was put on the road in a Jeep, which Lee had bought. And they'd done it all up. And then all of a sudden I'm roaming around giving away presents and gifts. And I was referred to as Captain Carl. And it just stuck. It just kept going. Now, of course, Carl, in the 60s, it was all about collars and ties for the jocks, and I assume, Eon, it was uh, jeans and T-shirts. But like so many other things, you were a little bit different with your preferred mode of dress. <laughs> well, as Lee said, it was commando style. <laughs> I got a phone call from uh, Jeff Campbell, the uh, production manager, who rang me and said, Carl, we need, I need you to do a couple of voice, uh, you know, some commercials. Get your ass in here, because that's the way we talk to each other, right? Get your ass in here as soon as you can. I said, listen, I've got no clothes on. I've just got a sarong. He said, I don't give a damn. And I said, but I'm on my way to the beach, South Melbourne. I don't care. Come in here. So I just jumped in the car, the mighty Kingswood, and off we go to Eon. This is early days, of course. And as I'm entering the building, Bill Armstrong, who's chairman of the board, he happens to be standing down there as I'm walking up the stairs, going upstairs. All the girls in the office, which is on the first floor, I don't know what they were thinking, but obviously they had a few giggles. But the sunlight would have been shining through my sarong at the time. So Bill Armstrong goes, Bill Armstrong goes to the manager, um, Clyde Simpson, and to Lee, and he's going, what are we doing here? What am I employing? I'm employing this guy. I'm paying him good money. And he's walking around in a sarong. You know? But it gets back to that first rule, no rules. You know, it's, it's like we don't care what you like, Carl. Uh, if you want to change the lighting in the studio, you can do that. 
You can put red, green, light, as long as it works. It doesn't matter. As long as whatever you do works. We don't care what you do, how you do it, as long as it works. And you go, well, yeah, that's the flash. Now, there must have been a real sense of roll up your sleeves and get the job done with Eon, but it just seems that these days a lot of radio is sanitised and corporatised and uh, not always for the good of those concerned. Did you ever get caught up in these changes and did anyone ever try to rein you in? Well, Eon, Eon FM was brought by Rod Muir and uh, Triple M in Sydney, their people, and I think they paid $20 million for it. And everyone got 20 bucks on the share, which they bought for a dollar. So everyone became really rich overnight. Uh, I think Bill Armstrong made eight and a half million. Everyone, production manager, they all had shares. We didn't, I didn't have any shares because by the time I got my money together to buy shares, they weren't available magically. <laughs> They'd all been allocated to all, you know, all these different people. The chief engineer, chief technician, you know, he made like a million dollars. The sales manager made a million dollars. Anyway, when Sydney took it over, that's when the corporate world started. That's when the corporate world started in radio period. From uh, the, late, the late 80s, certainly into the 90s, but by, by the middle 90s, it was corporate radio max. And corporate radio is a different beast. Uh, Eon was shareholders. 41 of them. Then 40 because Paul Dainty sold his shares for whatever reasons. So he needed some money. Um, and it was like a party, you know, it's like you drink and have drinks in the boardroom on a Friday and it was like you'd know their wives, their sons and daughters and, you know, you'd be a family. Once corporate took over, it was, you have to work with the beast, within the beast. And the beast doesn't care about you at all now. They're not family, they're not friends. You can have a barbecue at a barbecue and be with these people who you love and you know, but in the corporate world, on the Monday, you can be flicked like that. And I don't know if you know what it's like, Paul, but when you get when you get your marching order, so to speak, um, it really eats away at you. It makes you feel really, really down. Uh, and you have to bash your way back up into it, which I've always managed to do. And I've since had dinners and lunches with uh, with Lee Simon, who's, who said, like, one of the worst things I had to do was to let you go. He said, I've always felt really, really bad about that. And Ian Grace, who let me go with Lee, later on said, I fired the wrong man. And I'll make it up to you, Carl. And he did. And uh, he got me a job up at 4GG in, in the Gold Coast, which that station they just bought. Now, remember, it's the corporation now buying these stations. Plus, they bought uh, FM 104 in Brisbane. So I'm on the Gold Coast. Then a year later, I'm in Brisbane doing FM 104. Now, in Brisbane, the program director was uh, Bill Reiner. Now, Bill Reiner did not like me one bit. And he told me this in the office. I don't like you. But I have to employ you because Ian Grace has told me I have to. And they've just bought the joint. <laughs> And I went, well, I'm off to a good start here. <laughs> Fantastic. Anyway, Bill leaves and goes to two, two day, two day down in Sydney, which was the opposition to Triple M at the time. Now they're all in cahoots, of course. Um, so when Bill had left, then I just magically blossomed and went from late nights, early nights to drive at FM 104. 
uh, Bob Gallagher, Barbecue Bob, was the, uh, the program manager. And, the, and Bob's a really nice guy, still is to this day. I don't know where he is. I think he's at 4KQ or something. He manages that or something. And Barbecue Bob is just exactly that. He's just one of those fantastic uh, Brisbane, Queensland guys. And he laughs and jokes. He doesn't, he's not too worried about anything. Um, and he doesn't hate, you know. <laughs> but uh, there were a few people at the FM 104 who didn't like me, basically because I came from Melbourne. And the sporting director didn't like me because I was into AFL and he was into rugby. So I had to change a bit and then, hey, go the Broncos, <laughs> we'll be fine. Anyway, my job finished there because Bill Reiner came back from two-day back to FM 104. Who's the first guy to go but me? Well, as happens so often with you, Carl, uh, where one door closes, another opens, uh, this time back to Melbourne and Triple M. I'm, I'm sure there's a story behind that move too. I'm sitting in Brisbane, the phone rings, and it's... Uh, Ian Grace in Melbourne, from Triple M in Melbourne. They moved their studios out into the city. The Hoyts had owned them by then, or had bought them by then. So I'm talking to Ian. He says, get your ass down here in the boardroom by 4 o'clock tomorrow. I'm going, but it's Sunday. He said, not a problem. Uh, wink, my secretary will ring you. And sure enough, she rang me a couple of seconds later and said, right, I've got a ticket for you, blah, 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 blah. Went to the airport. I'm down in Melbourne the next day. At four o'clock in the afternoon, I'm in Burke Street, in 140 Burke Street in the city at Hoyt Cinemas on the eighth floor, and there's Triple M up there. And there's Lee and uh, George Bushman, uh, Michael J, who's the promotions manager. Anyway, Carl. Oh, and Ian Grace. Right, sit down, Carl. Good to see you, mate. Fantastic. Um, how are you? Gee, you look nice and tan there, Carl. Fantastic, you know, blah, blah, blah. Don't worry about your girlfriend. Don't worry about your stuff. We'll send her, we'll send all, you know, we'll send her back down here and, and all your goods and channels. Don't worry about that. He said, I want you on the road tomorrow. He said, well, I've got this Maverick Jeep downstairs, which Nissan, they changed the emblem to Nissan. Don't know what happened there. Ford sold that to Nissan and Nissan bought them or something. Anyway, we're in this black car, uh, triple thunder, and I have to drive around giving away stuff. So what I'm doing is I'm talking to the D generation in breakfast. We're talking 7.30 in the morning. I'm talking to Rob Stitch, Tom Greiser, Santo, uh, Mick Malloy, all these different people. Oh, Jane Kennedy, of course, who I knew. And they knew me from the Eon days. So hence the Captain Carl thing. They just repeated that. And so Captain's on the road. So I'm on the road. I discovered that about three weeks in, I got caught in traffic. I, I was... Quite, a lot of things happened to me by mistake. I got caught in traffic and I said, I can't do anything right now, guys, because I'm stuck in traffic. I'm stuck on the whatever, whatever freeway. But I'm on my way to such and such. So by the time I got to on my way to the such and such location, there's like about 300, 400 people blocking out the car park at the back of a pub. So... We tried to open the back door to give away the stuff, but we couldn't even open it because of the pressure of all the people on us. So then we eventually I opened the doors and eventually they just swooped in and took everything. I had to hang on to the jack and the, the car, the spare tyre. The, the crowd's about to knock all this shit off. Anyway, I'm on the way back, back into the city and I phoned Michael J because we had obviously phones in the car. And um, I said, listen, Michael, I've got to tell you about it. He said, I think I know. He said, I've had a call from the pub. Uh, they wanted to know what all the commotion was in their, in their car park. They were blocked out. 
And I said, well, this is what I did. I was caught in traffic and I, I pre-announced where I was going to be. And I said, this is the way to go, Michael. And he went, right. And I'm serious, within about two days, there was issued a, like a work order sheet for the day. This is where you're going, boom, boom, boom. Instead of me choosing it, Michael J had chosen that, but he had clients. So all of a sudden, it's all money-making, really money-making shit. Uh, to the extent of it was voted the um, best promotional for that year in 1991. It was in, we were in the back pages of Time magazine. And uh, Triple M was making money hand over fist from clients who would say they'd want Captain Carl to be there. And then every now and again, you'd, you know, you'd choose your own locale, but most of the time you were told where to go. Uh, but before that, it was totally my thing. And, and by this time, we had six cars. So I had a group of six people who needed to be looked after and told where to go and all that stuff. And then I started doing this third-person stuff, which worked out really well for me. The D generation loved it. I used to write three scripts, four scripts, not knowing what my conversation was going to be with them on the phone, on location or wherever I was going. In the morning, seven to really early stuff. And so I had a good time. Anyway, guess what? The station goes number one. So I go to the uh, ratings party, the degeneration are there and all that stuff, Billy Pennell, Lee Simon, everybody. And Ian Grace, he said, Carl, Carl, Captain, he said, how come you're always around here when we go number one? And I went, oh, I just don't know. And I said to Lee, I said, you know, Melbourne, Melbourne audiences are fantastic. They really love you. <laughs> and he said, that's right, Carl. <laughs> and uh, it's true. Uh, you know, when you get a fan base, it's, it's really, really nice. And, and even to this day, I still meet people who go like, yes. No, I, I don't tell people who the heck I am anyway, but if they ask, you know. And and yes, you know, I was a 15-year-old girl. I used to listen to you when you are doing drive and blah, 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 blah. And don't you realize how much you affected us all? And I'm going, uh, sort of. <laughs> you were having a great time, a great life. Okay, Carl, just to wind up this section, you did do a lot of different gimmicks when you were on air. Got any favourite ones you'd like to tell us about? Rob Elliott and I came up with this thing called Hide the Sausage. Um, and, and, and I'd go out after the, the, the Triple M things and I'd hide a sausage, actually a sausage. And uh, I used to have to, I got one of my guys to hide it during the afternoon and then we'd get back to it in the evening hoping, or in the afternoon when Rob was doing, he was doing drive in the hope that no one had, or a dog had not knocked it off. <laughs> and I remember doing one at a drive-in way out in Doncaster, way out in the, in the burbs in, in Victoria, in Melbourne. There must have been 3,000 cars all driving around this old, this old drive-in looking for a sausage, <laughs> which was hidden in one of the uh, speaker boxes. You've got to ask yourself, what the heck were you doing there? But we went number one. Do you double to the station? Okay, it's time now to ask Captain Carl the dozen or so standard questions that we ask all our guests. Starting off with Carl, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Um, somewhere near Eon FM. In fact, I think I was on the radio. Played nothing but John Lennon music after that. Uh, all day, 24 hours. Billy Pennell picked out all the Beatles songs that John Lennon had actually written and, and done the lead vocal on. So he was a busy man and we just kept playing this stuff all day. It was a very solemn period, actually. What was the last concert ticket you paid for? I've often thought about this, and uh, I actually haven't paid for any that I, can, I, that I can remember. Apart from when I was in London, I paid for a 
ticket to go and see The Stranglers and Peter Gabriel at Battersea Park uh, across the Thames from Chelsea. And there were um, big flash pots and The Stranglers were doing Peaches, I think, was one of their big songs at the time. Uh, their uh, smoke bombs went off down there. And when all the yellow and purple smoke had disappeared, there was 14 naked women, which apparently was part of the Stranglers Act, which I was not aware of. So that was interesting. Mm, nice one. What about a concert act that you regret never seeing? Uh, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. I was doing six to ten at Eon, and uh, I had tickets for the Palais to see Bob Dylan. I couldn't go, so I gave them to my friend Adrian Barker, who used to manage the models, or did manage the models, and he went and then phoned me later and tell me, he told me about how great it was. Carl, is there a word that you had most trouble pronouncing on air? Uh, Pacific. 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 You've got the general vibe. Okay, Carl, specifically, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't-come-Monday orders? Uh, well, yeah, there were a few, but most of them were off-air, not on-air. Uh, you mean on-air blunders? No, I can't remember too many. I remember one in uh, in Canberra where I upset a car dealer who thought he heard or his friend thought he heard me saying something derogative or something so uh, nick irby came in and went through the uh, you know the, the logging tapes they used to have he used to go for 24 hours a day and which are really hard to go back through anyway he did and discovered that in fact the person who thought they heard whatever was completely wrong i was exonerated and that was the end of the story sorry car um so no nothing on air uh, although there was a time when I took an extra week's holiday. That was interesting. I was uh, in Bali with somebody, and um, I hadn't had a holiday for five years at Eon, so I, I took a holiday, and I, I just stayed an extra week, and I shouldn't have. Preference, skyhooks or sherbet? Uh, early time sherbet because of their energy, but I'd, uh, their energy lasted till sixty, uh, sorry, uh, 75, and definitely skyhooks after that. The skyhooks just took over. Greg McCain is one of my friends, and uh, I used to get on with all the, all the guys. I, I, st I still have lunch with Bongo, with Bob. I, mm -hmm. I know the guys. What about the Rolling Stones and the Beatles? Ah, uh, well, see, the first band I ran into was the Beatles. Uh, but, you know, it ended up being Rolling Stones because the Beatles just ran out of power. <laughs> Carl, what's your most treasured piece of memorabilia from those heady old rock and roll days? Uh, well, in the other room, I've got um, a, a huge My Sex poster. There's all the original band members' names on it because half of them had passed on now. Someone tried to buy me, buy it off me the other day for $700. I said no. I've had a lot of girlfriends over the time and a lot of stuff has disappeared. That's all I can say. Okay, we'll let that one go through to Tim Payne. Hey, listen, Carl, the biggest news story that broke while you were on air, but I reckon I know what it is. John Lennon. Yep. John Lennon, absolutely. We're all stunned. Everyone was just stunned, walking around like stunned mullets. Thought so. Any on-air rival whose work you admired from a distance? Trevor Smith, but he's more like my mentor, you know, maybe Lee Simon. But I, I, any other jock was better than me in my mind. It was a constant, I had to get better every time. And sometimes I'd hear them do stuff and I'm going like, well, why can't I do that? But without knowing that I was doing that anyway, I was already making my path without even knowing about it. Carl, those best words of advice from a program manager, and I reckon you might have got a few of these over the years. First rule, there are no rules. <laughs> That's exactly what was told to me at Eon FM, okay? Trevor Smith, first rule, there are no rules. Um, apart from that, Lee going, uh, Lee, best advice, I don't know if it's advice, but uh, Lee's going, I don't care, I don't understand, 
but keep that vibe going, Carl. It's working. It's working. And and, and this is around the time you go number one the first time. You know. Finally, Carl, the two albums that you would consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. Rubber Soul, mm-hmm. uh, Revolver, Booker T and the MGs, and uh, Rod Stewart, The Faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, the early fate before Rod became a, a pop star, he was actually a rock star, and he was great with The Faces. Stay with me and all those songs. Well, speaking of rock stars, radio rock stars, Carl Vaness, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's been a diverse but never boring career and one that so many of us remember very fondly. Hey, thanks again. Thank you very much, Paul. And thank you, Pilots of the Airways. And good night and God bless. Carl Van Est on Pilots of the Airwaves.